0: Hi, folks, and thanks for listening to this tortoise shack podcast. Sam and Gareth has something very different for you this week. They did two separate conversations, one with uh, Queen's University's professor Colin Harvey, and another with Let's Talk Loyalisms, More Homes, and they decided to put them out simultaneously. It's not a both sides thing. It's not a, you know, oh, let's cover all our bases. It's none of that. The lads just thought, we'll put them out together, let everybody listen, hear the arguments, as as Colin will put forward for Ireland's future. And then listen to Moore argue for a better union, a stronger union, or vice versa. You can listen in whatever order you want to. But I think personally the lads should be applauded for their work, the effort they've put in, and how they've built Shrapnel Internal into this wonderful platform that's open to these voices and conversations that let's face it, you don't hear enough of. On a personal level, I'm delighted to work with the lads. I'm delighted the Shack hosts the podcast. And it's brilliant to see so many people are listening, liking, sharing, commenting you know, giving us uh, feedback and negative and positive. And if you're one of those and you like what the lads are doing, please help us keep the show on the road. Click the link at the top of the podcast. It says patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It is the price of a fancy cup of coffee and it's going to you to us. It's mics on bills paid and, and it helps to keep conversations like the two you're going to get to listen to now. Keep happening. Thanks for the support, for liking, for sharing. Give the lads a five star review wherever you're, you're listening to this now. And do us a favor, take the 30 seconds to click the link and join us. It's really, really simple. It's really straightforward. You get tons of additional content, including the most recent shrapnel conversation with Claire Mitchell, the author of The Ghost Limb. That's already available now for our members on patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. I am shutting up now. Enjoy the two podcasts.
1: Hello and welcome to the Shrapnel Podcast. I'm Sam McElwain and as ever I'm joined by my co-host Gareth Mulvana. How are you doing Gareth? Not too bad Sam, how are you? I'm not too bad. The weather was a bit dicey coming home. I see Agnes has given us a good lashing as we're, as we're recording here so hopefully my fence stays on. We'll yeah well
2: I nearly got blown off the road coming up from Bangor earlier but I'm, I'm here to tell the tale so oh, I'm all, you've, all good. You've,
1: you've survived. Yep. On tonight... Um, this is the second part of a two-parter. We had Colin Harvey on in the last episode, and tonight we're joined by Let's Talk Loyalism's Muir Holmes. His Twitter sort of bio says he's British and loyalist. He's, he's many things. Um, he's, a lo- he's a commentator on loyalism and on the community at the minute, and he's also a teacher. Um, so he's based in the community, and he's doing his best for the next generation. So, Muir, welcome. Thank you very much,
3: Sam. Uh, glad to be here. Looking forward to having a good discussion. Uh, this- Discussion with you guys.
2: Hi, Amir. Good to good to see you. Good to see you too, guys. All I good. We'll, we'll, we'll grill you. Go Sam, Sam's going to start. He's going to grill you. He's, yeah, man. He's, I mean, he's running to go. I have the
1: waterboard ready, so we'll, we'll get <laughs> cracking into this. Um right? I I accuse my community and our community uh, on a on a regular basis of not being positive enough. How we promote ourselves, how we discuss ourselves, and how we we let others see us. We 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 don't challenge it. And we don't honestly give them the evidence that we are any different. So I'm pointing it to you, how do we sell ourselves as loyalists but positive?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I think it is incredibly important for unionists and loyalists alike to be continually reflective, to always think about uh, the commentary that we engage in, the messages that we send, the way we conduct ourselves both publicly and politically, it's important that as a community, um, we we do consider the impact of our words and the impact of our actions and how others see us uh, for a number of reasons. Um, mainly also considering that we do support the union. We want to maintain and sustain the union. And um, the 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 sustenance of that union depends on majority support for that in Northern Ireland. So unionism does need to be reflective and considerate. Um, of its actions and of its commentary. I think what's needed within unionism, and this has been said for a long time, and I think we are incrementally getting there, is that collectively unionism gets to a place where it has a strong, robust, positive vision for both Northern Ireland and for the United Kingdom. And I think... In the past, because the past has been so um, tumultuous, there's been so many difficulties, there's been political instability in Northern Ireland, it always feels like both unionism and nationalism are reacting to crisis after crisis and we get caught up in this spiral of this zero-sum political game, um, which which means that we primarily focus almost only on our differences and that can create a hostile, febrile political atmosphere. Not just within unionism, but within Northern Ireland. But I think uh, what needs to prevail within unionism is a positive, strategic uh, vision for unionism and for Northern Ireland's place within the United Kingdom. I mean, that vision has to be has to consist of um, important characteristics like tolerance, um, inclusiveness, uh, rational thought, avoiding the reactionary politics that. That people within unionism and loyalism have got dragged into um, in the plot in the past that steers clear of sectarianism and promotes how advantageous the union is for everybody. And that's the message of unionism. I mean, what is unionism in its most basic sense? Unionism is about unity. Unionism is about togetherness, about this coalition of countries, this collection of people that make that comprise uh, the the United Kingdom. It's about this sense of wholeness and oneness and working together. That's what unionism is all about, and its nature. It should be inclusive. It's about bringing people together to to strengthen one another, to strengthen our country, um, and to further our goals, to improve our welfare. That is the essence of what unionism is, and it's right to acknowledge, um, in the past that you know perhaps the focus of unionism hasn't been on that. Um, and I've tried to articulate maybe why that has been, but but uh, it, you know sometimes it feels like we need to get back to the simple to the basics, uh, to the simple essence of what unionism is, and that is the United Kingdom working together and as one.
2: And is that difficult, Moore, given the sort of change in discourses over what the union actually is? We've seen, you know, demands increasing over the years for Scottish independence. Obviously, the referendum didn't work out in in their favour the last time round. But there's a feeling, I suppose, among Scottish nationalists, like Irish nationalists, that eventually... If they keep pushing enough and getting these referendums, it'll go through eventually. I mean, you've always had clamors for Welsh independence. To me, the interesting thing going on in England is you could almost have a federalised England. You know, if you look at London and the Tory government, you look at high rates of unemployment and de-industrialisation in the north and different sort of um, economic outputs across the place. Is it difficult for, for you to promote the union when it's seemingly so disunited at the moment?
3: Yeah, well, I think there are definitely challenges in maintaining unity, particularly when there is quite a lot of diversity. Unionism in Northern Ireland has that problem in and of itself and its own political community and the same issues you can see right throughout the United Kingdom. But I think, yes, whilst that is a challenge, um, what needs to happen is that we return to the essence of the union as being an you know, the nation of Britain um, or the British nation, as it were. And I think there's a tendency off the back of uh, devolution um, that 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 you see, you know, a growth in nationalism. I think when in the 1990s, when devolution was first coming in and it's in its uh, more modern sense, this was the notion was there that this would actually conquer ethno nationalism and throughout in the United Kingdom. And I think it's actually worked out. Um, uh, to be the contrary, but I, I think it's wrong to view and we need to challenge the idea that actually we're not the United Kingdom, but we're United Kingdoms, if that makes sense I mean, we hear people talk about four nations, you know, I think we need to return to this idea of us being one nation, the British nation with a British government for British people and when I mean British people, I don't mean the exclusive version of Britishness that we often refer to in Northern Ireland but I mean the collective right across uh, the United Kingdom, but there are certainly challenges when you see the rise of uh, the SNP, when you see the growth um, of Sinn Féin, you're also seeing Welsh nationalism as well. These are challenges that unionism needs to respond to, needs to be strategic about, needs to recognise that there is diversity and idiosyncratic nature to the different parts of the United Kingdom and to celebrate those and to include those and to make sure that they are part of the union as it grows rather than what we have seen um, over the past, I would say, twenty years, as an ever loosening union, as as you've had devolution, I think you know, those who are separatists within the United Kingdom want to see the United Kingdom being dissolved. You use the levers available to them in various devolutionary powers to try and break up that union or to create greater difference. I think we need to promote unity, but also respect of of that that sort of diversity within the United Kingdom as well.
1: Yeah, I think. I think what you're saying there about the, the, the rise of ethno-nationalism within the UK, I think it's a good thing to hold us to account because it, it, it forces us to be better, to to up our game, to actually to respond to it, to show the benefits of the union. Um, So as much as the challenge is there, it's maybe not always nice to, to see your, your views being challenged. It also holds you to account and, and lets you grow and go back to where it was. You you, talk, you spoke a minute ago about the past. Um, I want to look at that as well, that... We haven't always behaved in the best way and we haven't always been favourable to those who are our neighbours, who have a different view and we've always we've always got that hanging over our head. But I also think there needs to be a line in the sand, Drew, where I, I'm not going to pay for the mistakes of the past and I, I don't think as a community we can be held that we have to pay for those mistakes um, of how our forefathers sort of treated people. I think we've got to get to a place now where this is what's on offer today. This is what we can do together, and this is how Northern Ireland can prosper. Um, I well, see I Doug Beatty hat. Sorry.
3: I would say as well, Sam, when I say our past, I mean our collective past as yeah,
1: well. Yeah, yes. I mean, yeah. I mean,
3: I think every, every political identity has an open skeleton or an open closet full of skeletons. You know, it's easy to see maybe where things could have went different. And, and when you're in those contexts, it's probably easy to see why they took the paths that they did on, yeah. on many occasions, you know. But, but I agree with you in the sense that... Um, you know there is a challenge there, and we need to rise to that. And I thought there is an essence of accountability. But but I wouldn't I wouldn't. Whilst I think there were errors in the past, I wouldn't start condemning the past and go, oh look what these people no. did. And, and you know you know I'm I'm proud of a lot of the things that my forefathers did. And 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 I think you know there could be a a, a very robust debate about you know partition and why it happened and and the things that were. Uh, what happened throughout Northern Ireland, I think it's all too easy within nationalism and republicanism to you know try and make out like the history of Northern Ireland is just drenched in sectarianism and horror. I think there were a lot of good people and a lot of good unionists and a lot of good nationalists that tried to move northern Ireland forward and 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 world respectful and were inclusive and and there were difficulties and challenges, yes but but you know, I I wouldn't look at the past with shame, uh, if I'm honest with you.
1: No, I I was sort of thinking that. I mean, I'm I'm quite strong enough in my position that I'll take ownership of what I can take ownership of. But I'll yeah. challenge, I'll challenge nationalism to take ownership of what they need to take ownership of, and not yes. whitewash it and not yeah. Disneyfy it. They they need to own it. And I think we'd have a lot more respect for each other if both of us can own up to what we've done wrong, and we can own it and then take it forward. I think until we get to that point where the two of us can say, Yeah, we did this crap, and we did this crap. I think at that point we can have an adult conversation about how we move forward. I was about to say that I see Doug Beattie has a piece in the paper today, and it's it's doing the usual. If you're a dugout, you'll 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 be on board, and it'll be the best thing ever. And if you're not a dugout, you're you're going to lambast him for being weak on <laughs> unionism. Um, I I but I do hand on heart believe that somewhere between the DUP position and Doug's position, there is there is a pathway forward there for us. We can we can make things better as it stands at the minute for people in Northern Ireland, but deal with the issues that we have to deal with as well on the constitutional question. The question is, how do we get to that middle ground?
3: Yeah, I mean, so so we've got two separate things. You know, we've got the need for a positive message and a strong strategic vision. And I think it's there. I mean, I think you've seen... Uh, you know, Arlene Foster set up the UK Together group. I think that's a a really positive move. Um, you know, where she's incorporating people right throughout the British Isles to be involved in this conversation about improving the welfare of the United Kingdom and and promoting uh the sustenance of the union. You've got a recognition within you know the UUP and the DUP. I think who have who have um you know have tried to improve, I think, that public image of unionism and talk about the positives of the United Kingdom and remaining within that. They have tried to do that, but I think I think there's a real challenge in that right now we are in the jaws of a political crisis. And you know how do you how do you try to promote that positive message and talk about all the advantages of the united kingdom and and all those things that I think are important? whilst you're fighting this incredibly serious constitutional issue. And I think that's challenging for unionism because... You know I don't think there is a lot of confidence within the unionist community right now, and I don't think that's based on demographics or electoral stats. I think that's based on a political decision that was made in two thousand and nineteen that is still having ramifications. You might want to say two thousand and sixteen but but um uh you know they're still having ramifications right now so so there's a sort of paradox there. There is. We know we want to be positive, and we want to be strategic, and we want to put our strongest foot forward and promote the union. Yes, but right now the union's in dire straits, and I think that's that's because of a constitutional assault that has taken place in in the Northern Ireland Protocol. So you know, you can't hug your way out of a crisis. You can't. You know. Smooth that over and stick your fingers in your ears and pretend that's not there because we need to be positive. Just ignore this serious issue. You need to hold both at the same time, and I think that I actually personally think the DUP are doing that reasonably well. When you hear Jeffrey Donaldson talk about the suspension from Storm, and he's not, you know, he's not, you know, relishing the prospect of Stormont being down. He's not shouting from the rooftops you know, away with storming and done with it. You know, he's not doing that. He's saying I want Storming up and running. I want stable government, but it needs to be based on these things that we all agreed on in nineteen ninety eight and we've abandoned that. So so um it it is a yeah it's a fine balancing act, you know, and it's a hard thing to do when whenever you're in a calamitous climate like what we are at the minute.
2: Murr, there's one thing I'd like to pick up on that's something I've often thought about, and you touched upon it there when you're talking about the political crisis and obviously what's happening, you know, with the the government at Westminster as well. And I mean, it goes back to something that was in one of the Let's Talk Loyalism reports, and I want to go into Let's Talk Loyalism and talk a bit more about it at some stage in the interview. But you quoted John Kyle talking about unionists being sacrificed by the UK government for the Northern Ireland Protocol. Mm. I'm trying to get a handle on and I, I want you to talk i have a fair idea but i want you to talk to people maybe in the south of ireland uh, people across the uk and o- outside there who listen to us this idea of being sacrificed by the uk government it's not the first time that perception's come up we heard that around the time of the um anglo-irish agreement in the mid 80s yeah. and there's many other occasions where unionists have been in that position so what does it feel like as a unionist and a loyalist to have that sort of tempestuous relationship with Westminster and the UK government, where you're not entirely sure what their motivation is in terms of your constitutional future? Can you talk a wee bit around that, please?
3: That's a great question. And, um, you know, I I was heavily involved in what would be dubbed the Betrayal Act meetings, you know, where there was... uh, after the literally days within the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is obviously the agreement between the European Union and the United Kingdom on the Northern Ireland-specific arrangement post-Brexit, um, which creates a customs border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, so so off the back of that, literally, you know, before the ink was drying, you had these grassroots protest meetings popping up all over the country, Belfast and Beyond and and the spirit of those meetings was um, a protest against the British government because ultimately uh, this is the British territory. I've just talked about being part of the British nation, um, led by a British government responsible for. Um, you know the British people. Um, Northern Ireland essentially had been left behind. It was being treated in a unique and specific way, separate from the rest of the United Kingdom. Um, and and we were assured repeatedly by Theresa May and by Boris Johnson that that wouldn't be the case. Um, so so that's why it was dubbed the betrayal. I, I recall Boris Johnson you know, saying you know he would rather die in a ditch than, than uh, not deliver the entire United Kingdom out of the United Kingdom or out of the European Union. So, so um, this was a betrayal. this was a broken promise. And just like how many people feel when there are politicians who are there to represent them and advocate for them and stand for them, um, you know, feel whenever they feel to deliver on that promise, there was obvious angst and criticism and rebuke. And and that was primarily targeted towards the British government, but I think, you know, in terms of how feelings, it it it's obviously aggravating, and, and and it compels you to stand up against an injustice. And I think that's what's happened within unionism and loyalism, and it's obvious it's ultimately culminated cum, uh, culminated in the collapse of Stormont. So, um, those protests started in little in little back rooms and have now made their way right up. To Storm and are being repeated from the benches of Westminster. So um, that's how the the feeling right throughout the unionist community. But you know, I would say as a loyalist myself, my loyalty isn't primarily to the British government. My my you know, I would take the words of Billy Mitchell, who said, you know, I will fulfill my loyal my duty to the British government if it fulfills its duty to me. And I think, you know, whilst I'm loyal to the idea. Of the Union and the principles of the Union um you know that I, I think the British government has actually stepped out of line when it comes to protecting and advancing uh, the Union and therefore can, I'm more loyal of the Union than I am the British government and I think it's their disloyalty, in fact of the Union that that propels this protest so so you know as a loyalist and as a unionist it doesn't it doesn't diminish my affinity. Or affection, or commitment to the union, because it's the union I'm loyal to, and the British government, in my view, are the ones that have displayed disloyalty to it, and that's what I'm calling out. And and I think for your southern audience, you know, the Irish government, I think, have to take partial responsibility for this as well. Um, you know, we did a survey, the survey that you're citing there. We asked loyalists, who are you blaming here for this protocol? Who's on your rap sheet? You know, who are you charging guilty for this thing? And the number one uh, responsibility was the British government. Number two um, was uh, the Irish government. So, So how do we get to a situation where there's a UK new agreement and the Irish government are being held culpable for it? And I think the reason behind that was because, you know, the, the you mentioned the Anglo Irish Agreement, the Belfast Agreement is the international treaty, um or well the uh between uh, the British Irish Agreement, um, of which the Belfast Agreement is is annexed to. And um, you know, we were all we were meant to be guarantors of this agreement, and the Irish government deliberately weaponized that agreement to achieve their own selfish political objectives, which was to avoid a customs border between Northern Ireland and the Republic, and instead have one between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. So so they, you know, were very much involved in that process. Leo Veragner using the threat of Republican bombs as a convenient Tool to convince people of his um, opinion, uh, and and they made a deliberate strategic political decision to uh, be, you know, the European Union's, um, you know, what, uh, uh, you know, su- support the wholeheartedly the European Union position on this. Instead of, I think, and I know they're a member of the European Union, but instead of maybe embracing their unique position as our closest neighbor. You know, uh, we share a common culture and heritage. And history with the Republic, instead of then using that unique position to foster a more harmonious dialogue between the United Kingdom and the European Union, they they were the lapdogs to the European Union, and and the European Union sought to punish the UK for leaving, and the Irish government, you know, uh, worked hand in glove with them on that. So I felt that was a bit disingenuous and dis and and against the spirit of the Belfast Agreement, and that's why you know many people criticised them for it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've seen the Belfast Agreement as a dereliction of duty as far as the two governments are concerned. They sort of left us to it and have come back to whip us with it every now and again. Um, the question I'm going to ask is, I have stated before in the South at live events that I'm a loyalist and I'm a unionist and I, I'm, like yourself, loyal to the union, but not to the Tory government. People <laughs> seem to think that's a bit strange that I'm not loyal to the government. The government's come and goes, I see. Um, yeah. But I, I want to know when it comes, if, if it comes to a border poll, do we trust the British government enough to take our side, to be with us in this fight, or are we going to have to do this ourselves?
3: Yeah, well, well I, I don't think we, we or anyone mm. in any border post should rest on their laurels and just hope for someone else to solve it. You know, I think, I think if you look throughout history, mm. and this might be a very cynical view of things, but Gareth had mentioned about, you know, it's not the first time mm. unionists have felt betrayed by the British government. Um, and he's right on that, and you go as far back as, as the early 20s, you know, King George's speech when he opened the Northern Ireland Parliament, I don't think he referred to Northern Ireland once and he was talking about reconciliation and I think the agenda was that okay, this is a bit mad, but maybe give us 10 years and maybe Northern Ireland will be part of Ireland again, you know, that was the, that, that I think was the was the um, feeling at that time um from within those within mainland Britain, so so I think what has stopped the United Ireland from happening has been um, that every time and David Irvine used to say every time that nationalists tried to push through an open door and emphasis on the word open and that the British government didn't keep it locked um, every time nationalists tried to push through an open door toward a United Ireland there was a million unionists standing behind it keeping it shut. So so the problem with achieving United Ireland hasn't Necessarily, always been the British government. It's been us. It's been people like me that 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 don't want it and and reject it and are willing to do what needs to be done to stop it. So so um, you know, I wouldn't be resting on my laurels. Of course, you know, supporting the British nation of the United Kingdom um, and wanting the UK government to protect our interests and stand up for the union, which they say they do. Um, in, in, in word, and less so indeed. But of course, I'd want them to use all the sort of leverage and resources at their disposal to campaign for the sustenance of the United Kingdom in the way that they did with Scotland. And I suspect, you know, I suspect that they would, if I'm being honest with you, I know we can be cynical about the British government, but I do suspect they would. Maybe i will be proven wrong on that. but But I suspect that they would. It's not in the United Kingdom as a whole's favor for uh, Northern Ireland to leave it. Um, uh, division leads to division, and that's not a good thing for the united kingdom. um so so i I think they would. but but, you know, I do think people would be worried. I think what's inexcusable is that the British government have often tried to remain neutral. In Northern Ireland in the past, you know, selfish and strategic interest, you know, um, they've tried to maintain neutral and I've often wondered why that is. And part of me wonders is it actually, is, is that pattern of appeasement towards Irish republicanism a misplaced guilty conscience? That's sometimes what I think, you know, is that actually they've been hoodwinked by an Irish sob story that they don't challenge enough and they just accept without... You know, being really critical, you know, the United Kingdom rightfully extends to this island and I think Northern Ireland is as entitled to be part of the United Kingdom um, as every other part of the United Kingdom the history across the British Isles, the cultural history, the political history, the social history. People have been moving across that Irish Sea for thousands of years, conquering and settling and invading and trading and all sorts of things. And, And there's 12 miles between the closest point in Northern Ireland and Scotland. I can tell you now, a couple of thousand years ago, it was easier to get to Scotland from Northern Ireland than what it would have been down to Dublin or Galway. With the mountainous, you know, physiographical... Uh, terrain separating us, you know. So, so the North East has always been a, a, you know, a distinct entity in this island, and has always had a real intimate relationship with the rest of of Britain. So, you know, I don't think that's talked about enough, and I think what we hear is a version of Irishness that is obsessed with, um, you know, historical injustice and grievance and and, and um, you know, Anglophobia and hostile to Britain, that, that that message just continues like waves crashing against the shore to hit, um, you know, the British government and, and British people. And I think it's actually penetrated in some places British opinion. And I think that needs challenged. Um, people need to be more confident and recognise that Northern Ireland is a rightful and integral part of the United Kingdom and not be ashamed of supporting that.
2: Murr, something I've always found really interesting, and, you know, your passion comes across very clearly for people listening here. You're an advocate for the Union, you're an advocate for Northern Ireland, and for loyalism, which is something we'll get onto as well. The thing that really struck me over the last couple of years as an historian of of loyalism and having looked at, you know, particularly events in the 1970s, um, I'm trying to think how to phrase this, but if you look at the protests around the protocol and the scale of the protest... Well, I haven't seen anything on the same scale as the Anglo-Irish Agreement protests, UWC, the proroguing of Stormont. You know, those sort of historical events where thousands upon thousands of rural and urban unionists and loyalists came out to protest. Why do you think there wasn't defeat on the street in the same way?
3: Yeah, I mean, good question. I was asked that before by BBC Spotlight and I think at the time, I can't remember if Stormont was up or not and I chose to have a pop, at you know, political leaders within unionism. Um, you know, I think it was a different time. Uh, that's the first thing to say. You, it was an, an extreme time, um, a hostile time. There was a very emotional time, feelings, temperatures were running high, and, and, and that sort of activism was you know, quite popular and and, and and done plenty of things, you know, Anglo-Irish Agreement, Sunningdale Agreement, uh, you know, civil rights marches, you know, that, that was very much the way of the day, and um, in that context, I think what was going on at that time led to, the, you know, returning to those old tactics of activism and protest. I think um There's a couple of reasons why you haven't seen that today. One is because it's a different time. Two, because political leaders within unionism haven't been fully embracing that political strategy. I'm sure there's reasons for that. Um, I think as well, unionism and loyalism is a wee bit worrying of things descending like they have in the past. So 2013, flag protests, things went violent. I think people are mindful of that. You know, even at those early Betrayal Act meetings, we were talking about protesting and, and trying to make our voice heard because, you know, as you remember at the start, we didn't feel like our own politicians were listening to us, never mind anybody else. Um, but, you know, and we, were, we were really cautious about trying to make sure things didn't spiral out of control. You know, having a sense of responsibility about how we went about trying to challenge this injustice and not... Um, letting the genie out of the bottle if you will you know there was talks about um, uh, different, types of protests that could have been, um, you know, very provocative and whatnot. And I think, you know, there was a maturity and a responsibility and a consideration within loyalist leaders to say, let's challenge this and let's try to challenge this the right way. Um, and I think you have seen that. I think on the whole, whilst people might remember, you know, uh, violent protests or, or, or you know, rioting mm-hmm. at, at, in the Shankill or Row or up on Carrick, you know, there's a there's 200 other protests that that weren't like that and were very peaceful and and very positive and allowed people like me and other people within my community to 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 voice how they felt, you know, um and and of course time and time again people wanted to demonize that and belittle that and demean that, you know, and 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 reduce the seriousness of it, but you know whilst there hasn't been boots on the ground like the Anglo-Irish agreement I would say there's you no know, storm dying this is serious you know people care about this this is very serious issue the, the political crisis that we face and, and people have democratically the right way endorsed that stance you know so 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 they came out of the ballot box and they voted for it and political unionism and their leaders uh, have taken that stance and, and 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 delivered on it so so you well know, I think I think moralism unionism should be praised in how they've they've handled this um you know, I remember sitting with fellow loyalists and we talked about how this will be you know, an opportunity to politicise young people, to engage them in this question, but we wanted to see people ascend rather than descend. We wanted to see them galvanized and motivated rather than apathetic and depressed. You know, so so and you know, I think in, in certain areas we have seen that and others may not, but but you know, you know, people are all rising up against this. And I think some have tried to demean it by saying, Well look at what you had back in nineteen eighty five. You don't have that now. We're in a different day we're in a different context um, you know, we're, we're, we're engaging in a different strategy um, but, but you know, I, I think as far as moralism and unionism can politically constitutionally push this we have, so, so that, that shouldn't be taken lightly
1: Yeah, I think I think we've done well not to rise to debate of those arguments sometimes people provoking us and then the numbers do turn out and things turn sour and we become the victims of that I'd also say that as much as those protests were were largely peaceful, there was people like Russell Watton up in Coleraine who ended up with a, a criminal conviction. For, for for managing a peaceful protest and keeping the tension low and, and putting it in a way that even the PSNI had approached him and asked him to do this, he still ended up in court with a fine and, and a conviction against him. I think it was pretty badly handled. I mean, Professor John Barry was on with us a couple of weeks back. Um, and what he said around the flag protest sort of resonated with me. It was almost classist from some middle class and upper class unionism to so look down at the, flag, the, the the protests were were at the, especially when the flag protests were working class, and the same then went for these pro- protests, the protocol rallies. They they, they became almost classes. It was it was the loyalist working class community that was doing this.
3: But yeah, and and Sam, you make a great point, mate. And but also it was successful. It delivered. I mean, when we were having those grassroots protests, what were we saying? We, we we were you know criticizing the British government, we were criticizing the Irish government, we were criticizing the EU, and then we said, now, now political unionism needs to do this, political unionism needs to do this. And every time we had those protests, Stormont was still running, uh, the, the the Belfast Agreement was still operational in all of its strands, and we were saying, listen, this is the terms of this agreement have been broke. Right, that being broke, the the what was intended as a cast iron guarantee for our community that the constitutional position of our country, of our union, could not be broken unless the majority of it of our country of Northern Ireland consented otherwise. Unionism was saying that listen. This cast-iron guarantee wasn't cast-iron at all, it was a sham, we've been hoodwinked, and it's been broken by this protocol. Our leaders need to be doing something about it because we don't feel like we're being represented. And and domino by domino, step-by-step, uh, step, political unionism, I think, you know, without being too critical, I think they, you could say they caught up or they started listening to To the people they represent, and it became clear that the momentum was too big, the support was too much, the people were exercised by this issue, and they demanded political action. and And of course, the worry at the time would be: if you don't get the political action, then what other action are people going to engage in? And and you're, you'd be a fool to think that people weren't you know you know entertaining that or talking about that. But 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 I think the. Di- the diplomatic political steps that have been taken are to be commended. People, people like me people within my community I think um, you know feel represented by the current stance by political parties. There does need to be some reflection, there does need to be conversation there does need to be collaboration I'm not doubting that but but people feel represented and and, and, and that very hostile difficult time you know, royalists I think as a community felt marginalised they felt like they weren't being listened to. They felt they were just being walked over. Um, and, and that's, again, I think a culmination of a lot of things from 1998 onwards, you know. Um, people talk about, you know, the protocol being the straw that broke the camel's back. I think it was more like the hay bale that broke the camel's back, you know, but there was plenty of straws there anyway. But, you know, and so I I, I just think, you know, the steps that have been taken have been, you know, political, democratic steps, um, and and you, when you look at the LCC withdrawing from the Belfast Agreement, when you look at the PUP doing likewise, the DUP pulling out of uh, North-South relations, and 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 the uh, the operation of Stormont, or you know, I think they were all appropriate political steps, I and mean, we no, they can be criticised and demonised by so many people. I understand it because it's not what they want, but as a community where unionism and loyalism is at. I think these were wholly justified, you know, um, because of because of what had happened through through the Northern Ireland Protocol.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm going to let Garth in here in a minute because I want to be hogging this, but no, I think okay. when when you have the likes of David Trimble withdrawing sort of support and pointing things out, and you have the likes of Billy Hutchison, who who fought hand and hand and heart for for the Good Friday Agreement, saying that this broke it, this this was against everything that they were promised at the time, you sort of have to sit back and think, why?
3: And and Sam, Sam, it's it's within the context of the Belfast Agreement, the Good Friday Agreement being mentioned every minute of the day leading up to the Brexit Agreement. We must protect the Belfast Agreement. You must look after this. You must ensure that the Belfast Agreement is not touched and all of its parts must be sustained and protected. And you know, all of that was smoke. It was smoke, right? Uh, it was the Belfast Agreement. Then was reduced by the Irish government and the European Union as a tool to advance their own aims. That that's what it became, you know. And and as the Irish government talked about the Belfast Agreement, they only talked about it in in, in nationalist terms. And every sort of you know on the duty within it got interpreted in favour of nationalism, you know. And and I mean, I have to say, like. It's not for me to judge people who supported the, the the Belfast agreement. I have a lot of respect, like more respect than I could say for, for people that sold that from within my community. So, so I'm not going to start in my, you know, in 2023, start running over history and saying, oh, should have done this? I didn't live where well, I was alive, but I didn't vote at that time. I wasn't aware at that time and I didn't know and appreciate the sacrifice and effort that went into delivering that. And, and I think... The people that did really believe in Northern Ireland, you know, they really w- hoped for a better tomorrow, and, and I think I'm I'm not entirely sure, you know, if if that's been realised yet. Um, but but the thing that brought unionism and loyalism, which was already a divided community in the Belfast Agreement, into the fold, into the peace process, was the commitment that the union was safe. And 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 how they measured that was through the principle of consent. You know, we, our position cannot be changed um, unless the majority of this country support it. And the reality is that in a UK court of law, we have had a judge say that the UK is no longer a unitary state. Right. So you, you can't wish that away. You can't ignore that, and um, yeah, people can criticise unionists and loyalists for getting bogged down in identity politics. You know, the whole world is catching up with Northern Ireland with identity politics. Everyone's at it now, but but you know, this was this was the pivotal um promise, the 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 central pledge to the unionist community that got them into the peace process. You know, and it's it was ripped up. Ripped up, and you're right to mention David Irv- or David Trimble, who said the heart and soul of the Belfast Agreement has been ripped out. And then I listened to so many people eulogize him, and, and I didn't know David Trimble, you know, but but I listened to so many people eulogise him and talk so, so fondly of him and how he was so wise and ahead of his time and took had such great courage. And then there he was in, in, in 2021 or whatever it was, warning us all, saying, Listen. you've you've messed this up here, you've broken something. But they didn't want to hear because they weren't interested because the Belfast Agreement doesn't matter unless it's advancing their own political cause.
2: The one thing that really jumped out at me this year, you know, with the 25th anniversary of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement was, you know, looking back on that time, the immense pressure Trimble was under within his own community, but also... I began to think again about Bertie Ahern, and obviously the amendment, the Article Two and Three of the Irish Constitution. You know, he was under immense pressure as well. And I'm, I'm just thinking, and again, I'm playing devil's advocate here, But what happens then if there is a referendum? Okay, and there's this magical fifty-one percent. So you wake up the next day, and there's fifty-one percent that voted in favour of a reunified Ireland. What is the strategy? You've talked really well there about the appropriate political steps. I think that's a fantastic phrase because you've used that phrase around opposition to the protocol. And that's what we want to hear. That's what people want to hear in this day and age. We don't want to hear people talking about going back to the bad old days. You've you've um, outlined a positive vision there. You've talked about appropriate political steps. So in that scenario where you have the 51% in favor, what are the appropriate political steps for loyalism in that scenario?
3: So, so that's a good question, and and I'll I'll answer it once I say a few things uh, first. So, um, I think you talked about Garth, or you'd ask a question about the inevitability of a United Ireland and things like this, and and I think people can entertain the thought of a United Ireland until um, the cows come home. But but if I'm honest. Um and I'm not being complacent when I say this and I don't think anyone should be complacent. I think when people talk about the inevitability of a United Ireland, that, that's that that's hard to reconcile with the demographic and electoral realities. You know, I think the myth of a United Ireland being inevitable Honestly and I don't mean to be disparaging you, I think it's like a coping mechanism for hardline republicans you know they 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 are living in a in a territory that they don't want to live in um that's uncomfortable uh, you know that they they're unsettled within it so they tell themselves and their leaders tell them one day you're not going to be in it um and and you know it's coming round the corner and, and it's a bit like Pascal's wager you know better to believe and you know find out you're wrong than not believe and you know end up in trouble so so uh you know I think it is like a coping mechanism you know convince yourself it's happening um, but I also think it gives the Republican community confidence you know they're told this is happening keep going keep going and it helps them engage in the political process to further what they essentially want um, but like I would say I think it is a deliberate denial of the electoral and demographic realities you know nationalism's vote share has not really substantially increased in the past 25 years so there's nothing about that that suggests or indicates to anyone that we're on a march towards unification, it's not there you know and even, even in the census there that came out you have You know, maybe you've got the figures 41% um, British, 33% Irish, 32% Northern Irish. That's telling me that Northern Ireland is an increasingly diverse community, um, you know, where actually both Irish, Northern Irish, and British all feel a sense of belonging. Here, this is you know a home, it's our home. We share this home, it belongs to us all. Might be things about the home that you want to fix, you want to change the wallpaper, you want to fix the step, whatever. But but we're not talking about knocking the home down. And and I think I think that's where we're at. Um, you know, in, in Northern Ireland. Right now, I think you know, there is a little bit of a fake it to make it strategy on behalf of Sinn Fein and others who deliberately misinterpret things to try and muster. You know, momentum. Oh, there's more Catholics and there are Protestants in Northern Ireland. now, It's coming, but but actually, there's a lot of Catholics identify as Northern Irish, and there's a lot of Catholics that are Unionist. or oh, Sinn Féin are the largest party. It's coming, but, but like I said, there hasn't been that substantial vote share gain within nationalism. So so the myth of the inevitability in Ireland is a myth, uh, in, in my view, and, and I think the challenge for Unionism is focusing actually on the next generation, young people who I think are more susceptible or vulnerable to being hoodwinked into this romantic, you know, fantasy of what a you know island would be, because I did not think it would be that. And that brings me on to your question. Uh so um but but I think I think it would be honestly it's it's hard for me to think about and you know because number one I don't want it to be a reality and I wouldn't put my voice to it being a reality. Uh, and and number two um, I, 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 think it would be a very challenging time. I mean, I mean, in the event, in the unlikely event that a border poll was won by nationalism and republicanism, I think there would be, um, a very toxic reaction from from uh and uh, from from unionism and loyalism. Um, I think you know I and many other people would oppose it. And resist it. And the question would be: how must that opposition what, what does that resistance look like? And and the truth is, if if we're prepared to be candid in this discussion, it would probably look like for some people repatriation, they might want to leave. <coughs> I wouldn't be in that number. Um uh, some people might want to do that, other people would probably look at repartition. Um, you know, you know we just had a Brexit referendum, guy was that respected? <laughs> you know, yeah, well, so, good point. <laughs> you know. We've, we've a lot of people that are very keen on sacking referendums and disrespecting referendums results. I don't think they considered the fact that if they won a referendum on Northern Ireland's future, that 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 suddenly unionists would go, okay, we'll we'll respect the referendum result now. I think people would look at repartition. Um and the truth is I think some people would look at revolution or or at least some form of, you know, rejection of of a new state. And and I don't I don't try to I'm not trying to be provocative when I say that I just recognise that we're in a post-conflict society, and and I think you know that that that's a that's a potential reality that we would need to to bear in mind. Um, I don't think that should interfere with the political or democratic process. Um, in a in a in a border poll or anything like that. But but um, you know, uh, I I think you know I I don't see. I, I think the more United Ireland would be talked about, the more people would see that it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing for Northern Ireland. It's not a good thing for the Republic of Ireland. It's not a good thing for the United Kingdom. It's not a good thing economically. It's not a good thing politically. It's not a good thing socially. Um, and, and the idea that United Ireland will suddenly solve all our roles and create a new utopia is honestly full of the builds. And, and what, I, what I hear so often is people saying, you know, oh, we'll have a New Ireland and an island of equals and this will be all great. And, I, and all I think about when they say this is I'm like, you're using equality and you're using respect and you're using tolerance, uh, you know, and, and respecting other people's cultural and national identity as a means to the end. You know, they, those things should be an end in and of themselves. We should be wanting to do those things now, not putting a hand over them and saying, listen, if you give us a New Ireland, then we'll do all those things. So, you know, I, I really do think that's, you know, arch about face. And 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 you know, I think our energies and our focus um should be in making Northern Ireland work. And, and and until you've done that, then how can you really make anything else work? You know, and and I think that's where the real prize is. And and there's an argument, interestingly enough, for the union and for United you know, Ireland and making Northern Ireland work—you can spread it both ways if you want, but it's better for everyone in in, in Northern Ireland, um, and I think that's where the focus should be. I think you the you reason to bring up—sorry, yes. sorry,
2: go ahead. No, no, it's just the reason to bring up that scenario. I, I'm really struck by that phrase, "appropriate political steps," and it it really—it's given me a lot of positivity about you know the future, uh, even if we're going to disagree, at least we're going down the right path of disagreeing, um, I mean in, in society, not not in this conversation, but the thing that always strikes me, and Sam has always said this from a loyalist perspective that you don't want to envision something happening, and I understand that, but sometimes you have to disaster plan, is the way Sam would put it, so that's where I'm, 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 I was trying to get that to, and yeah. I, I know you might not want something to happen in the future, but You might look down the road and think, well, if it does happen, and you've outlined the scenarios, or you outlined it, so you answered the question. But I think, you know, and I'll I'll, I'll let Sam get in here, but I'd like to talk about Let's Talk Loyalism and the idea of advocacy and, you know, sort of, I like that phrase of helping people ascend rather than descend. And you've been central to that, and me and Sam were, you know, really impressed when Let's Talk Loyalism came out. C- can you talk a wee bit, and I'll, if Sam wants to jump in on something else here, maybe he can preempt that. But um, no, he's okay. So let's talk loyalism. For people who don't know, like people outside um, Northern Ireland who don't know what it is, what is it, and what's what has it achieved in the last two and a half years? Just just to give an overview.
3: Yeah, so let's talk loyalism. W- was born in this uh, climate of crisis, if you will. Um, uh, it was born out of the idea of you know loyalism needing a strong and coherent and articulate voice, and I think you know myself and a number of others, Stacey Graham, um, who works um, uh, in the Shankill, Dean McCulloch, Andy McCormick, um, Aaron Stewart, Kellyanne Shaw, and a number of others that 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 that, who, that we partner with, all were sort of in agreement that moralism uh needed to to put its strongest foot forward, to articulate its points with coherence, with effectiveness, um, with reason, and, and to enter those political debates and discussions in in, in a in a way that, that, that is effective. So so that means that we have, you know, uh, you know, produced quite a lot of content about platforming loyalist voices, you know, letting young people. Uh, we, we had a website that, that that published article after article and all this sort of thing. And just giving a soapbox to various loyalists that maybe, you know, don't have their voice heard. So we want. We believe that let's talk loyalism could be a means through which that loyalist voice could be effectively heard. So, um, and and there's been different ways through which we've done that. Articles being one. We've also produced. Uh, a number you know of videos political politically related videos culturally related videos sometimes we engage in you know education uh trying to inform people about you know our c- cultural history um things of that nature uh but we've also obviously been very engaged in the in the uh, political sphere when it comes to activism on that part so we've engaged in, in surveys where we have distributed uh, surveys to people within our community to get their perspective on things, compile them and produce um, reports. We've produced, uh, you know, uh, something called the podium. So it's where someone, you know, is basically on a soapbox and giving their views and trying to do so in a way that people will listen to and understand. Uh, we've also engaged in, you know, animation or created an animative uh, informative pieces, whether it be around the protocol or a number of other things. It, it's really, you know, there's no prescriptive, uh, this is exactly and precisely what we do, but, but we try to engage in anything and everything that helps, you know, advocate for people within our community. And obviously, something like the political crisis that we're in has occupied a lot of our, you know, time, uh, because we feel that is advocating on, on behalf of our on behalf of our community. But there are also other things like poems and stories and videos and all sorts of things uh, that that we've tried to put out there to to not just to not just uh, encourage moralists to speak, but also encourage others to listen. And, and, and you know, I would love the idea that someone wants to know more about what loyalism is and they use our platform to do that. You know, that that would be, you know, mission accomplished for me. But also, you know, we've run, you know, we've went out to young people as well and, and tried to, you know, run educational workshops. We're talking currently about, you know, trying to get off the ground a qualification in politics and to run that and to get as many people as we can. that so we're actually you know developing capital within our community and engaging them uh, politically so so there's lots of ambitions and lots of dreams and and all the guys that are involved in it none of us are paid we're all there on a voluntary basis people like like see the people in that group i have so much admiration and respect for them each and every one of them um and they're just people who are wholeheartedly committed and passionate um, you know, for their community and are using Let's Talk Loyalism as a means to support them.
2: No, yeah, I, I mean, I th- think it's really positive. Sorry, Sam, you go ahead now. I was that, just going to say
1: that yeah. when it, when Let's Talk Loyalism launched, I gave the full support to it because it was a way of engaging the loyalist youth. It was a way of bringing them in so they couldn't be used for somebody else's nefarious games. And they were brought in and educated and taught about their culture and given a chance to be... To be positive with their loyalism and not negative, to do something with it and understand it. Yeah, and and
3: and I would add to that, Sam. Like, you know, one of the things that we that we would like to do is, you know, challenge stereotypes about loyalism, and one of them is that you know, uh, like, like there aren't groups. Like, let's talk. I mean, there's there are there are lots of like there are so many positive initiatives in and throughout. The loyalist community. And Gareth, mentioned earlier about nobody likes to brag about themselves. And, and I think that's a very Northern Ireland thing, you know, but like, Absolutely. like I remember, I remember talking to a guy, a fellow loyalist during the, uh, during the pandemic. And, uh, you know, loyalists were day and night distributing food parcels identified people, went round. Like, I remember a fella across my street, his boot was filled with about 30 food parcels. And and I was like, who the hell, who else is doing this sort of thing? You know, and I remember saying to one of our guys, listen, you might think this is a bit weird. Can I just capture a video of this? You know, we don't need to talk, don't need to put even your faces in it. And it's not about, you know, oh, look at me. I just want to capture this to show people what you're doing, and it isn't a necessarily uniquely loyalist thing. I'm not saying that, but I was just like, this is an amazing thing that's happening, and it's happening within our community, and and I think it's important to highlight because God Almighty, there's a line as long as your arm of people who are ready to highlight the stuff you know that, that that they don't like about our community, or or to misrepresent the loyalist community, or to reinforce false and inaccurate stereotypes of of our community. So, so you know, unfortunately, the guy said no, you know, and, and and it always struck me, you know, I was just like, you know, is that, you know, is that representative of of so many others within loyalism that we're actually, we don't talk about the amazing things that we do. You mentioned alternatives, you know, ACT Initiative, you know, the Diamond Centre in East Belfast, lots of different, you know, Community organisations that are doing amazing work, um, but we often are happy to let it stay in the shadows and let someone else talk about, you know, you know, the negatives, you know, and 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 that's something I think we really need to work on.
2: One thing I was really struck by from the twenty twenty one survey that you did, I think, which was probably the first survey, I think it was on the attitudes, or it was like an overview of, of what yeah. loyalists was thinking at the time. It, it it struck me because it, it, a lot of it was familiar to me in terms of the demographics that actually responded to the survey. So I think 13%, 13.4% were females. Yeah. And then you had almost 70% urban. And in my research into the loyalism, it's always been urban male voices. <laughs> so, so, you know, wh- wh- how did you, I know, and, and Sam's point in there.
3: The
2: <laughs> ab- Absolutely. No, And I, look, I mean, you, you talk to who whoever's preferred to talk and that's, it's, you need people to talk and, and that's the thing you welcome voices, but how, how do we, and I, I, I'm thinking about my own research, more of the historical stuff that I've done in the past. And I know people at the moment who are doing that type of research when they go out to the country and I've had this when I've gone out to the country as well, which is for me outside Belfast, anywhere outside Belfast, the country, but you know, when you go, when you go into middle, and places like that, yeah, people say, Oh, we've got stories to tell. We could tell you a million stories. And then you say, well, would you like to tell them? No, 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 not, no, definitely not. And then the women are the same. Female voices. Loyalism hasn't been as good at pushing female vo- And look, I know it seems like a contradiction in terms because Stacey's very active in Let's Talk Loyalism, but the actual response to the survey, there was a very small amount of, of of women. So can you talk a wee bit about what the challenges were around that and what's changed since 2021? Have you managed to get more buy-in from rural and Uh, female constituencies
3: yeah well well uh, that was something we ourselves highlighted in the survey and said this is clearly room for improvement here that survey was primarily um sent via social media so you know the response is as much reflective as perhaps political engagement in social media as it is you know, loyalism. Um, so, uh, yeah, and that, that was a challenge. We said that, that you know, any surveys in future and what we're intending to do one soon enough that we try to put a code on it and ensure that we're engaging, you know, those voices that we weren't able to represent um, through that survey in terms of what we've done since then. Uh, you know, our, our organisation has different people that have various contacts throughout Belfast and Northern Ireland, you know, and it's and it's largely dependent on on the individuals. You know, I live in East Belfast, so I'm able to engage with people in East Belfast. Stacey's living in the Shangle and she's able to do up her iron's up in um you know Middle Store direction. Uh so you know or London Dry direction and and that's it's largely through just you know our individual context. You know, um, but I, but I'll take that as a challenge. That that's something we, we you know we would like to do more in. Um, I know we have Stacey and Kellyanne in our group. who are fantastic advocates. Um, and and Stacey does amazing work with the Schengel, uh Women's Act. You know, there's there's we, we've engaged with them in the past, but you know, e- e- even you know, in terms of getting involved in politics, there there are so many things that put people off. You know politics, and I think you know, particularly women and the way women are are, are treated, whether it be on social media or, or elsewhere, I think can be a real deterrent. And um, and one one of the things that our group has 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 been sort of focused on at different stages in the past is trying to you know highlight the treatment of you know some of our activists, namely Stacey and Kellyanne, and and the way they've been treated on on social media. But there is. You know, challenge that that we're all sort of obliged to to take up, um, because you know a female voice is an important voice, and 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 offers you know a, a, often a different insight and perspective and experience, and 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 we're definitely more richer with it, um, than what we are without it.
1: Well, Mary, it's been absolutely fabulous talking to you, um. I, I do a bit in the South every now and again, Gareth, I tell you, they, they usually bring me down as the token loyalist in the room and, and we do live events. But I have always said that they need to get more loyalists now because I'm not the only voice and my voice will be slightly different than your voice and slightly different from other people's voices. And we're all, it's a broad church. We belong to a broad church of ideas. Loyalism isn't just one sort of ideal. So I'm, I'm going to put it out there that anybody who wants to talk to me or come through us if you want, because I'm sure mer will be ha- more than happy to engage um, because they need to hear us and they need to hear this, what we're doing. They need to hear this positivity that we're putting out there, that it's not, we're not all knuckle-dragging thugs. Um, we're interested in porn and drugs. We actually do have a functioning brain and we can articulate our side of the story. So I'm going to wrap up now. I'm going to let you go back and do whatever you're doing tonight because, yeah, I feel more positive about how we're sitting now as a community because I feel as if I'm not the only voice that's crying in the wilderness going, we need to be positive here. It feels like we do have the message buried within us and we're going to get it out there. Um, So thank you very much, Murr. It's been a pleasure and we'll talk to you very soon. Thanks, Murr. Thanks for taking the time. Really enjoyed that.
2: Thanks
3: for having me on, guys.